0: Happy Fourth of July. Good to be together. My name is Mark. If you're joining us online or you're here in person for the first time, welcome. I serve as one of the elders here and I get to bring the sermon for us this morning. I want to encourage you uh, particularly this morning, but but any morning, uh, you need uh, and will benefit from having a Bible and keeping it open uh, or on. Uh, If you need a paper Bible, they're available uh, in the back of the aisles in the auditorium and I think upstairs as well. We're also going to have the Lord's Supper after the sermon and so if you need the elements for that you can go ahead and grab those. This morning as we gather obviously it's the 4th of July the day our nation celebrates its independence and there's lots of discussion going on currently in our nation uh, about our nation and about its history. We're preparing our hearts to hear God's word and as we do that I want us to just highlight one thing, and that is we are experiencing a great gift right now, and that is we have the freedom to gather openly and without fear for worship, to sing praises to God, to fellowship, and to hear his word, and we're very grateful for that and very aware that many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world don't have that freedom even as we gather here this morning with that freedom. So let's begin with a word of thanks and prayer. God, we do want to thank you that we can gather openly, freely, and we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to your word. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, so many other countries where it is difficult and dangerous to gather together with other Christians. We pray that in their weakness, your strength would be made great and powerful to them today. And we pray that your name would be exalted in every nation, tribe, and tongue on this planet. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen Okay, so two months ago, Sojourn Church and Redeeming Grace Church joined together to become one new church. We've just finished preaching a series called Faithful Church, sort of laying out our our confident hopes, our aspirations for the kind of church we hope to be in Christ. And now we're turning our attention to, a series in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. So this is a little bit of a different message because we've sort of come together in different places. So earlier this year while Sojourn was finishing up uh, the Gospel of John, Redeeming Grace was working its way through Second Corinthians 1 through 7. So today is either a Second Corinthians start or a Second Corinthians Restart, and so I'll be honest, I'm not sure exactly how to do this message. I've never done a message in this situation in this way before. I hope uh, this is helpful, and I know that as we open God's Word, it will feed us. My goals today are this I, I want to provide some familiariz- uh, f- familiarity for you with this letter. It's not an easy letter. It's the most personal of all Paul's letters. It's the most intense and passionate of his letters. And I find the more I read it, the more I love it. And so I I hope that this will encourage you to this letter and give you some overview and understanding of it. This letter highlights for us in unique and, and pointed ways how the gospel shapes churches, shapes church members, shapes leaders and shapes the mission of the church. So what I'm going to do today is instead of sort of a traditional sort of overview of here's the 13 chapters and here's how they break up and here's an outline and all that, I'm going to just highlight two passages in this letter in order to highlight two gospel principles and how they work out in the life of that church and, and the writer, and then how they work out in our lives, too. And I think those two themes, I hope they can sort of connect to the big themes and, and, and the rest of the material that's in this letter, and I trust these two passages will speak to us as well. At the end of the message, I'm going to give just a brief forecast for then where chapters 8 through 13 in particular go. I want to start with an illustration, though. When I was growing up, we... Played board games together as a family sometimes, and sometimes we played this game called Life. And so, if any of you, I hear a few murmurs. Okay. So, when uh, Leslie and I got married, we had some kids, and and we started playing board games. We thought, hey, we used to play that game called Life. That let's let's go buy that, and we can we can play that with our kids. And so we bought it, and we you know set it up, and and the the way it works is this: it's a, it's an American game, so. Of course, every player starts in a car, right? Because that's how it works. And that's how you travel through life. So the board is your travels through life. And there's this spinner thing there that everybody spins. And then you move a certain amount of spaces. And it, you, you either take jobs or you might get married or have kids or, or decide, do I want to go to college or, or do a, a different career track? You might have setbacks like foreclosure or, or lose your job. But here's the kicker. The winner is the person, the player who ends up at Millionaire Acres, with the most money. So if you end up with more money than everybody else in the game, you are life's winner. Well, we, we were shocked. Like, so this is, hey kids, let us teach you about life. Jesus does not come and say, hop in the car and follow me to Millionaire Acres. That's not how Christianity works, right? He says, take up your cross and follow me. These are two very different visions for life. One prizes self-fulfillment The other, self-sacrifice. One is focused on rewards in this life, the other in a life to come. Now, Christians, I think, generally know better than to accept millionaire acres as the goal for life, but the reality is the values of that game of life are just constantly seeping into our lives and churches And we see that so clearly in 2 Corinthians. See, in this letter that Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, the gospel has taken root in their lives. He says in chapter 13, the last chapter, he says, Christ was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. There's the heart of the gospel, Christ crucified in weakness, living in resurrection power, and now in light of that in response to that 2nd Corinthians 5 17 if anyone is in Christ he's a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come so old made new so now the gospel is a new life for them they're new creations and they're intended to live in a new way but there's always a battle to live that way isn't there came across this wonderful quote In the uh, Carson and Moo's introduction to the New Testament, the cross, Christ was crucified in weakness, the cross not only justifies, it teaches us to live and die, how to lead and follow, how to love and serve. You see, the cross lays out a whole new way of living. All who are in Christ aren't aiming at millionaire acres, aren't aiming at getting the most toys, but, are, but have a whole new way of living, a whole new set of principles for life that come from the gospel. New real life practices then flow from those principles. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two of these gospel principles, if I can call them that, that come into view in this letter. And I then want to work from those gospel principles to how they're working out in the lives of this writer in the church and then how they can work out in our lives as well. So direct your attention with me please to Second Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. He says, "'Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace.' I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So we'll get a map out in a minute You can so you can picture what's going on there, but hang on to those that geography for a second. Then he says, verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. I'm going to read that again because that's the gospel principle. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now, welcome to the letter Paul is writing to the Corinthians. It's a mixture of all this personal interaction and experience and travels and people. And, 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 and in the midst of all that communication, there are these wonderful gospel truths and there are these wonderful verses that we fasten on to and hang on to. So I want to just highlight the principle first from verse 20. The principle we saw in verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Let me say it the way the New Living Testament translates it. All of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. All of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Now this is a massive hermeneutical and theological statement. This is a statement that teaches you how to read your Bible. This is telling you how your Bible is put together. The promises of God that are made in the Old Testament, look forward to Jesus. Jesus is prepared for and predicted in the Old Testament. In the Gospels, he comes into view and we see him. And then in the rest of the New Testament, they're reflecting on who he is. So the whole Bible converges on Jesus Christ. If you read your Bible and you don't find Christ in each sentence, phrase, paragraph, chapter, then you're missing the point of the Bible because all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ is a way of saying everything that God is communicating to us in his word is focused on Christ that comes into view in this letter let me show you Jeremiah 31 31 Jeremiah one of the Old Testament prophets here's a promise behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah another prophet Ezekiel I will put my spirit within you, notice the future tense, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There are the promises made, promise kept, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. God has made us, past tense, sufficient to be ministers of what? A new covenant, just like he promised. Not of the letter. The Ten Commandments, the law, but of the Spirit now written on our hearts. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 6.16 has promise and fulfillment right here in the same passage. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, if you read your Old Testament, you know where the temple is. It's in Jerusalem. It's a building. That's changed because Christ has come. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, back in Leviticus 26, 12, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Promise made in Leviticus, promise kept when Christ comes. Promise made, Exodus nineteen six. you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? priests are go-betweens between God and others. And what he's saying is you're going to be a group of go-betweens between God and the rest of the nations. That was his intention. Israel never fulfilled that until Christ came and then look what happens. 2 Corinthians 5:18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are go-betweens between God and our neighbors. God and the people at your workplace. God and the nations. So God makes all these promises. He's doing something in history. He's doing something in the earth. And those are fulfilled in this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have noticed as you walk back and forth in our lobby, we have a set of core values out there. The very first one, do you know what it says? The gospel of Jesus Christ is our central message and only hope. Why would we say that? Because that's what God says to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our central message and only hope. As a new and combined church, that's not a new message for any of us. That has been the theme of these two churches and now coming together in one church. Jesus Christ is the organizing center of everything that we are, of everything that we aspire to be, and of all that we hope for. What are the implications of this? Well, verse 18, look there with me, please. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. You see what Paul is doing there? There's an ethical implication to God's promises being fulfilled in Christ. You see what it is? Here's, you got to understand the situation. Let me try to give you just a little bit of background, uh, because if you don't understand what's happening in the relationship between Paul and these people, it's hard to grasp some of what goes on in this letter. The Apostle Paul had planted this church in Corinth, but now he finds himself on the defensive. He, um, if you can go ahead, and put, Jonathan, put the map up. That'd be great. It's a little earlier than I'd said. But it, if you can just see the colors on the map, Purple is where Corinth is. That's in modern-day Greece. Green is Ephesus. That's in modern-day Turkey. And Jerusalem in the lower right is down there in red. So here's the deal. Paul goes to Corinth, and he spends a year and a half there, and he plants the church. And then he leaves. He finds himself in Ephesus for a period of time. He gets word things are going badly in Corinth. There's, there are factions in the church. They're suing one another. There's, there's gross immorality in the church. Their church services are so bad, he writes to them and says, it would be better if you didn't meet at all. That's bad stuff going on. And so he writes to them. It doesn't go well and he's, what do I do? He's pulling out his hair. No church caused him more trouble than this. He's over there in Ephesus and he just decides, I'm going to just take a quick run over there and try try to help sort of right the ship. He does that and you know what happens? It gets even worse. And so he comes back and now he's in Ephesus and now he's trying to decide what to do. And part of the project that he's on here is not only helping churches grow, but he's collecting money for the poor saints that are there in Jerusalem. So he knows he's going to go up to the top of the screen there to Macedonia and then through Corinth to collect funds from all these churches and bring them with him for relief for the saints in Jerusalem. So what he says is, hey guys, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go see you. Then I'm going to go up to Macedonia. Then I'll come see you again. That's what he was talking about in verse 15 and 16. Then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. But then the more he thinks about it, the more news he gets from church, he's like, this is not going to be good. I, I can't go visit them. Things are too raw right now. They're not ready for that. So he changes his plans. And he says, instead of visiting you twice, Corinth, Macedonia, Corinth, Jerusalem, I'm just going to come once. Macedonia, where he ends up going, and that's where he's writing this letter from. And then to Corinth. Do you know what happens when he changes his plans? They say he's a flip-flopper. He's vacillating. He's changing his mind. He's just—he's—he's he's like a politician who's always changing his views depending on whatever popular opinion has to say. They're, they're accusing him of being fickle. And, and what he says is, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. You see what he's saying? Gospel implication. He's saying, look, God says things and then he follows through. God makes promises and he keeps his word. God is faithful and his word is reliable. And so he's saying, look, I did change my plans. I'm responsible for that, but I'm not flip-flopping. You can take me at my word. And the reason I did that, verse 23, is to spare you. I did it out of love for you. So he recognizes that because God is faithful in what he says, Paul is going to be faithful in what he says too. That's a real life implication for all of us as we respond to the gospel and to the God who keeps his promises. Second implication is, it's right here in front of us, but it's a little hard to grasp. It's actually the whole letter, but I want you to look at verse 21. In verse 21, he says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Now this church was a pain in the neck. This was not a fun church to work with, be responsible for, be even connected with. This church caused him more trouble, probably than all the rest of the churches that he planted combined. And, and yet, he had poured his life and his heart into these people. And now, having done that, sacrificially, he, he, he allowed them to give him no money, he, he, he received income from other places and he worked as a tent maker in order to support the church planting work that he was doing there. Now they've found other leaders that they like better and they've, they've turned their back on him. They're slandering him. They're following these other leaders. He's tried writing. That went badly. This is actually, it's called 2 Corinthians, but this is the fourth time he's written to them. We don't have two of the letters. He's tried writing. That's gone poorly. He's tried visiting. That's gone poorly. What's he going to do? He he doesn't know what to do, but I want you to see this. He will not give up on the church. Why not? There's plenty of good work to do. There's all these people to evangelize. There's all these other churches to take care of, churches that like him. Why stay in the game with these guys? It's because of the gospel. God has established us with you in Christ. See, when God fulfills his promises in Christ, what does that mean? What is he doing? What do those promises bring to pass? Well, here's what it does Jesus tells us, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's where all those promises are going. God is gathering for himself a people. For himself, a people to dwell among and walk among. The church, we heard in our last series, is the wisdom of God. The church is the, is the, the means by which go, to God be glory in Christ and in the church, the text from last week. And so the promises of God fulfilled in Christ bring about a new covenant people. And Paul is simply not going to give up on these people because of the gospel. Paul knows they've been brought together by God and Christ, and so he won't give up on them. I came across this wonderful quote from Carl Truman this week. He says, St. Paul was certainly well aware of the failing of Christians, even of the wickedness that they could perpetrate in the church's name, as his blunt letters to various congregations indicate, and he gets nowhere no more blunt than you'll see him get in chapters 10 to 13 in this letter. But listen to what he says here. But Paul never ceased to present the church flawed, Divided, morally compromised as she was, as the meaning and hope of history. Do you think of the church that way? Flawed? Of course it is. Compromised? Hey, you and I are part of it. How could it be anything different? We're doing our best, but we're not perfect. There's only one perfect one. And yet, the church is the meaning and hope of history. You want to know what life is all about. This is helpful to remember, isn't it? God has established us together. God is doing something great in the earth. God is doing something great in bringing two churches together. And church life can be messy, can it? It can be hard. You know, we're a couple months into two churches becoming one, and maybe it's not comfortable right now. Doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel like your old church did. Maybe so many people to meet, or things are just different, and maybe you're meeting in a different building, different place, different time. If the church is the meaning and hope of history, it's worth hanging in there with. God is doing something great in the earth, and He's doing something great through churches, through the church. Christ came to establish the church. All those promises are fulfilled so that God could restore what was lost in Eden and have a people to be with him in a new paradise to spend eternity with him. And we get to be part of that. Let's hang in there together with one another and let the vision of the church being the meaning and hope of history fill your heart and thrill your heart despite all its flaws and imperfections. Gospel principle number two. Here's the principle and I'll read the passage. God's power works best in your weakness. I, I was expecting applause and a standing ovation God's power works best in your weakness. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? That's what I was hoping to hear in church. That's actually how it works. Look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, Hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power works best in your weakness. Now, Paul's experience was unique. None of us are the apostle to the Gentiles, none of us are called to suffer the way he suffered, and yet. This gospel principle of God's power in our weakness creates a pattern of living that becomes the normal Christian life. I can prove that to you in two ways. First, I'll point you back to Jesus back in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. As I read earlier, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Christ sets the pattern. Suffering. Glory, weakness, resurrection. Okay, crucifixion, new life. That's the trail Christ blazes for us in this life. You can see this should work out in the rest of the letter. I'll just highlight two spots. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Don't you love that about God? The Father of mercies. And the god of all comfort why well because he comforts us in all our affliction you know what affliction is it's weakness it's things you would like to change but can't he comforts us in all our affliction why so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction so in our weakness what happens we experience the gracious power of god and then God sends us to somebody else, and so that in their weakness, they can experience his gracious power through us. His power works best in our weakness, so that we may be be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Weak people, strong God. Chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What's the treasure? It's the gospel. It's this new heart. It's this new life. It's the Holy Spirit living within us. What's the jar of clay? That's you. As Justin said, as he taught through this, you're you're the takeout container from the restaurant. What everybody's interested in isn't the container, it's the food that's on the inside, right? Well, that's how it works with us. The treasure is what's inside of this jar of clay, and the treasure is this gospel new life that we have received. Paul, in describing how weakness makes a place for God's power to rest, isn't describing a way of living that was unique to him. This is your way of life too. It's the normal Christian life. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. What things? Afflictions, sufferings, persecutions, difficulties, cancer, divorce, joblessness, COVID, all these things. His power is made perfect in our weakness. This letter shows us how this principle of God's power made perfect in human weakness works out in lives like ours and in churches like ours. Now, you don't have to go looking for weakness. It will find you. I promise you. Right? And you're free to ask, as Paul appealed three times, Lord, please take this away. But when God leaves it with you, welcome that weakness with confidence that this is the very place the power of Christ will rest and work best. Now, how does this work out in life? What difference does this make? Well, you'll see as we come to chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, the arena that this brings into view is Christian ministry and leadership in church. Genuine Christian ministry boasts not in success, not in accomplishments, but in Christ and in weakness. The Apostle Paul is having to defend his ministry to this church because a group of boastful, arrogant, braggarts, self-congratulating super apostles, they've won the hearts of that congregation. Paul seems so puny and weak in comparison with them. The last thing Paul wants to do is play this game of boasting that those guys are playing. But it seems to be the only language the church there understands. And so you'll see as we come to these chapters, he, he does boast to them, but he turns the tables. You know what he boasts about? He boasts about his weakness, his sufferings, his hardships, how many times he was in prison, how he had to sneak out of a city. We don't know what this thorn Was, But we know it was painful enough that this guy who was pretty tough appealed three times, pleaded with God to take it away. And rather than remove it, God had something else in mind. God said, I'm going to leave this there to show you how to live with my strength being perfected in your weakness. I'm going to teach you how to depend on me. I'm going to teach you how to find power in the midst of that weakness. If he could have avoided it, he would have. If you can avoid weakness, do it. But when it comes by God's hand, please know the Spirit will give you grace to endure and to experience God right there. And God may be doing things right there in you that are more precious than you could ever imagine. And he's preparing you to give that to somebody else as well. Where are you weak today? What are those parts of your life that you just so wish you could change? May this passage bring you hope that that place of weakness is the very place God intends you to experience his presence and his saving power. And his power works best in your weakness. That's the new way of living. You won't win the game of life by living that way. But you'll follow Jesus by living that way. It's the way of the cross. God's power works best in your weakness. All the promises of God with a resounding yes are fulfilled in Christ. And we're here as a result of that. And finding ourselves here, we find ourselves here with a whole new way of living, not bragging, boasting, self-congratulating, but actually welcoming weakness, boasting in weakness, being content with weakness, knowing that when we are weak, we are strong in Christ. If you can get a hold of those things. This letter is going to make so much sense, be so encouraging. And your life this week is going to be filled with communion with God as well. So that's kind of the the flavor of this letter. Chapters 8 to 13 is where we will spend our time in July and August. Chapters 8 and 9 teach us how to live this new life, live as these new creations by excelling in financial generosity. We'll unpack that as Paul is gathering this offering for the, the poor saints in Jerusalem. This is the longest sustained uh, discussion about generous, generosity and giving anywhere in the New Testament. So that's coming the next few weeks. And then chapters 10 to 13, living as u- new creations by uniting together in a church that prizes a particular kind of leadership humble leadership, Christ-centered leadership. That's part of what it means to be a faithful church. And as we go through those chapters, I think you'll find them to be full of life and encouragement, whether you're a leader or not, because they, they bring the, the, the gospel into view, God's strength working in our weakness. Okay.